0: Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new con gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlowaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is
2: there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from P.S. Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest.
0: Everyone, welcome to another episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing and your favorite query letter segment, Books with Hooks. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, thank you so much for the wisdom and guidance shared on the podcast and social media. It's so honest and heartfelt, and you have inspired a whole new contingent of writers who live by the mantra that it just takes one yes. Also, those like me who plan to print, behold my field of fucks, it is barren on a t-shirt, which is such a good Bianca line. All right, reaching out now about the wet season, my dual POV, 80,000 word commercial fiction debut. Comps include Kevin Wilson's Nothing to See Here and Kylie Reid's Such a Fun Age. And I'd like to think of it as Thelma and Louise with a much happier ending. In 2015, Los Angeles, 35-year-old Belinda is trapped in an abusive relationship and Celeste, her formal high school, let me say that again, In 2015 Los Angeles, 35-year-old Belinda is trapped in an abusive relationship and Celeste, her former high school best friend, is stuck in an emotionally manipulative marriage. When a chance encounter reconnects them at a moment of crisis, the two women escape to an eco-focused Central American island nation to flip the dilapidated and possibly haunted beachfront mansion they had bought for a dollar. As the perpetual rain of the wet season complicates their efforts, they explore queer identity an attempt to safeguard the medication abortion rights and a mysterious stalker watches their every move. The wet season celebrates the power of female relationships, platonic, romantic, and the gray areas in between. The wet season takes place in 2015, when I watched a news segment about Americans who were buying cheap homes in Sicily, and then traveled to Costa Rica for the first time. I mashed up these experiences, and the book was born. I have an MA in journalism from USC, and completing an MFA in fiction at Pacific University. My work was recently featured in The Washington Post, The Good Trade, and Hippocampus. My career as an environmentalist led to appearances from The Today Show to TEDx, and informs my creative writing. I am fascinated by how the past shadows the present. Let me say that again. I'm fascinated by how the past shadows the present and imagine a less dystopian and more hopeful future. This is evident in The Wet Season, in which scalable solutions to environmental crises structure the island's sustainable world. I self-published two nonfiction books and now give one away through my mommy greenest blog. I also mentor young writers through 826LA and am an active member of the Women's Fiction Writers Association. Additionally, I'm relatively well established on social media and have a 9,000 plus subscribers on my mailing list, which I've cultivated since 2009. As per your submission guidelines, I have embedded the first five pages below. Thanks so much for your consideration. All best, Rachel Lincoln Sarnoff.
1: Thank you, Carly. And what was the word count on that? And what did you think of the query letter?
0: All right, this one came in at 430 words. As you said, I mean, well, as I said, I really laughed obviously at the uh, little intro there. I mean, that's not the type of thing that you put in a queer letter to other people, but for the sake of the podcast, um, that was obviously a home run and that was very funny. So I definitely think this is a pretty strong opening. I think the wet season is super interesting as like a word and a term. Really, I think you know, people who understand the seasonality of like monsoons understand like there's a wet season and a dry season and all that sort of stuff. I think this really needs like a cover image to bring it to life um, or like you know, a tagline on the covers. Like I'm imagining its future um, and kind of what it needs to succeed. But it's it, it it stands out. That's pretty that's pretty unforgettable. So I think that's interesting. Next. um, So there's a couple things that really stand out to me that feel very like stalwarts of women's fiction in the sense that I think writers of women's narratives get stuck in these things like chance encounters, moments of crisis, and how do we elevate those stakes to really bring them to life on the page? Right? Because a lot of writers love, well, there's a twist coming up and I don't want to tell you, but in order to hook me, I have to be able to see it here to request the pages. So we get trapped in this catch 22 of not getting enough requests like you're not getting enough requests because you're not telling me what's actually happening in the book. So this is definitely something that I see time and time again. So here, the the words are the chance encounter reconnects them at a moment of crisis. This is in the same sentence. So all of this means nothing to me right because chance encounter i'm like it sounds very coincidental we need reasons why this isn't so coincidental and the moment of crisis i mean to me knowing what this moment of crisis is massive right and whenever we're talking about two characters what is the crisis that brings them together right so they have their individual arcs and then they're going to have a crisis together which connects this glue of this story so all of that piece was pretty vague to me um I think something that was really buried in the lead here was the, they explore queer identity. Like that's super interesting. I want to know way more about that. Are they kind of like crossing those friendship boundaries into like friends become lovers? That's super interesting. That's a huge hook and I would be elevating that to the top. So that's something where, yeah, just a huge piece that I think we can kind of um, can, can elevate. I think that that would be super, super interesting. The other piece I want to know is, if, if this is before they're kind of crossing the line from friends to lovers or whether it's just flirtation, why are they buying a house together? That's a big question mark for me. I'm like, why doesn't like one person buy the house? And I don't know, somebody else is moving in. What's everybody's financial situations? Like to me, that's also really interesting about like buying a house with your friend. Um, that's also something that's like, again, a lead, a hook that's quite buried here. Um, I think the author bio just comes in on the long side, especially since we're clocking in over 400 words. There is kind of two... So I think in an author bio, it's okay to have one like storytelling piece where it's like, you know, behind the scenes or something you want to kind of explain in a more... Um, Relaxed manner bolstering your bio. And you have two kind of storytelling elements, which is the news segment about Americans buying cheap homes abroad. And then you have the uh, at the bottom, you talk about environmental crises and kind of how that's bolstered through your work, your working life. So I think you need one. I think you keep the one about the news segment and how that inspired the story. And then you cut the one at the bottom and then you just integrate that into a future phone conversation with an agent. So those are my notes. I'll tell you what's happening in the pages. So we start in Belinda's point of view. Belinda is sitting in the back of a storeroom at a clothing store. We get the sense it's either like her break or the store hasn't opened yet. She's like snacking. She's eating Cheetos. She has like Cheeto dust all over her. She's like emptying the bag into her mouth. And then she hears the doorbell kind of ring at the store. Um, So I get the sense it was like, oh, she was either kind of like late to open or somebody's really eager. We find out it's a consignment store. So they're talking about the different clothes and, you know, people, it's, it's a kind of a community consignment store where people like drop off their clothes and shop from it. Um, And so the woman comes in to drop off her clothes and she's talking about how like beautiful they are and they smell like a wonderful perfume and how she smelled like some not so great uh, consignment clothes. And then as the woman's kind of wandering around, they realize that they know each other. And so this is the introduction of these two friends meeting each other. I get the sense that I got the sense that these two, um, yeah, had known each other, but also um, I wasn't quite sure on what year it was. So I wasn't sure if this was like our contemporary meeting, or again, this is a this is a kind of a flashback to how these two met. Um, and so we get the sense that we were talking a lot about you know, safety, how like, you know, some elements we get the hint that like maybe her marriage isn't so great. Um, she says at the end, the last line is, even now after seventeen years, Celeste, which is the friend who brought in the consignment clothes, still makes her feel safe. Safety is something Belinda hasn't felt in months, and that's not safe at all. And that's where we end our sample.
1: Awesome, Carly. Thank you. And what did
0: you think of the execution? I think this started off really strong. So I'm just gonna read you the first two lines I thought they were quite interesting. So it says Belinda perches on a stool between two racks of clothes in the storeroom. Like a bird that can't commit to a branch, she shifts her weight nervously on the wobbly wood disc. I thought that was lovely, this little, like, idea of, like, a bird, kind of, like, birds are, like, simultaneously, like, pretty vulnerable because they're, like, small, but they can also fly and get out of situations um, in the branch, the kind of, like, toppling foundation. It wasn't, like this woman's life is not secure. She's a bit wobbly. It's like, Oh, no, it's like, let's use this bird metaphor to kind of, you know, build this analogy. So I really thought that was a really sophisticated and really thoughtful opening. There's a lot of discussion about and this is a bit of a like, I don't want to say a trigger for me, because I don't really feel like that's the right word, but a bit of a like, yellow flag I don't know what to call it my shackles go up a little bit when we talk a lot about a woman's body and how she's feeling inside her body and how she looks and how her clothes are fitting like I get that this is a clothing store environment and a lot of women do spend a lot of time thinking about where their pants fit tight and you know how we look and then I don't know, all of these things. I I find that a little bit triggering on the first page because I feel like the author is very intentionally trying to say, pay attention to this woman's body. Pay attention to how this character feels about her body. And that's a very intentional choice. And I wasn't sure how intentional I was supposed to be made to feel about that. So... I don't know. I'm, I'm just, as I said, putting that up as like a yellow flag to be like, am I supposed to be paying that much attention to that? Or is that just supposed to be characterization? So I just wanted to flag that a little bit. The other thing I wanted to be really clear about was when this was set, you know, and I just love a timestamp. So I got the sense this is set in the 2000s because it said there's a line that says, um... Uh, my husband still gets the paper. One of the women says so archaic, and then uh, Blinda says, "I wish I did. I probably wouldn't be so stressed out if I didn't read the news every time I looked at my phone." Did you hear about the airstrike in Afghanistan? We missed the Taliban and hit a Doctors Without Borders hospital. So like, that's a very specific time to be communicating that information. So that feels very specific to um, to a certain time. So anyway, so I would be making it clear again, are we, Are you telling us that because we're supposed to know this was in the past um, or is that something, I don't know. I was just confused about what that is supposed to signal to me. Um, one other thing that I f- that stood out to me was um because again this is about like clothing and so there was an incorrect spelling of Neiman's like Neiman Marcus was spelled incorrectly and I'm like okay well if you're going to be like talking about clothes I'm like I know how to spell Neiman's <laughs> so I'm like oh, that stands out to me as something that you know should be something that we know how to spell but obviously it's a bit of an odd word and spell check didn't um pick that up in particular so I was a little bit confused about like why these two didn't recognize themselves right away but I like this little like viewing the other from a distance um in the store. So I think it's overall strong.
1: Thank you, Carly.
0: Uh, Cece, can you read your query letter?
1: Dear Cece, because you're seeking books that deal with female relationships, as well as high concept sci-fi, I'm excited to share my 110,000 word dual point of view adult science fiction novel, The Grove. My book features an eccentric billionaire with a private survival enclave, enclave, and ulterior motives as seen in Camp Zero by Michelle Min Sterling, while also delving into bodily autonomy issues addressed in Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. In the year 2070, the United States has fractured along ideological lines in two separate countries, and climate change is ravaging the world. But none of that affects Naomi Kellerman in her neo-Druidic cave-dwelling community, The Grove. Then, Naomi's life is radically altered when she's appointed guardian of her obstinate 16 year old sister, Celine. Naomi has no intention of bringing Celine into her idyllic life until she finds out Celine is a bone marrow match for the Grove's leader who is dying of leukemia. Celine doesn't want to live with Naomi or the cult she abandoned their family for. She agrees to get. I'll say that again. She agrees to go only when Naomi promises Celine she can live with her best friend's family as soon as some guardianship issues get worked out. The grove is just as awful as Celine thought. She can't have electronic devices, she has to wear homemade clothes and eat vegetarian. Worst of all, within moments of her arrival, she's given the first batch of a bunch of shots that are supposed to protect her from some weird cave virus. She has no idea the shots are part of the plan to harvest her peripheral stem cells and use them to extend the life of the man whose religion tore her family apart. Neither sister has the full truth of what the Grove's leader intends for Celine. With rumblings from Yellowstone, with rumblings from the Yellowstone supervolcano, an eruption of which will seal them into their underground shelter for the foreseeable future, the sisters are running out of time to put together, I'll say that again, to put the pieces together. If they don't, Celine will be sentenced to a lifetime of having her stem cells harvested. If they do, Naomi will have to admit to herself the corruption at the core of the community that means everything to her. While I've never lived in a cave, I sometimes want to visit one to get away from my Category 4 kid hurricane. Instead, I escape by writing on a daily basis and attending weekly meetings with my critique group. My debut novel, Seeds, will be released by Rising Action Publishing Collective, summer of 2025. Per your submission guidelines, below please find the first five pages of my manuscript. Thank you so much for all the time, effort, and energy you and the others at Ya put into helping and supporting writers, especially those of us in the query trenches. The podcast has been such an invaluable resource in my own querying journey. Sincerely, Angie
0: Paxton. Thank you, Cece. How long was that query letter, and what did you think of it?
1: So this one came in at four hundred and seventy-eight words. It is on the longer side, which I understand because sci-fi sometimes does require that. Um, I really, I think it's really strong. Like it's a very polished query letter, very tight. I love the familial disruption as the entryway for the story. The fact that the protagonist becomes the guardian of her younger sister. In sci fi, this is especially important in order for us to connect with character because it's there's already such a different world that we know nothing about, but everyone can understand the bonds and the pull of familial obligation and disruption. So I think that was a really smart choice. I do think that the paragraph that begins with neither sister has the full truth that I felt could use a little bit of tweaking just because how do they come together? Like I'm assuming they do to fight against. And the volcano, is it? Because that's my second note. Like, is Naomi okay with the volcano? I was expecting this part of the story to be more along the lines of when Naomi learns X secret about the leader, she has to decide X or Y and that have that X or Y be connected to Celine's uh, stem cells, as opposed to the volcano being the driving force. Um, it can feel a, b- a little bit too big picture when you make it about an environmental situation. Like, it's important to personify your antagonist, and the cult leader seems like a great option for that. So I would focus on maybe tweaking that. Um, and yeah, but overall really strong query letter.
0: Uh, and Cece, let us know what's happening in those pages.
1: So the protagonist is surveying her parents' house. She hasn't been there for a long time and her 16 year old sister is there with her. Um, her sister's complaining that she can't take her things. The protagonist is trying to be patient, reminding herself that they need her, meaning they need the younger sister. Celine is going to go say goodbye to her best friend. That makes the protagonist nervous because she's worried that the best friend or her family might alert Celine to the fact that the protagonist has been lying to her, but she knows she needs to stay calm. She takes a phone call with her wife and they discuss things about the world and scheduling. And through interiority, we see the protagonist nervous because she um, is pregnant and her sister doesn't know. So she's keeping the secret from her sister.
0: All right. And what's your analysis of the pages?
1: There is so much care that went into these pages. I can tell um, it's very polished on a scene level, meaning the author took care to always let me know what was happening. If I had to shoot this, I mean, I wouldn't be able to because I don't know how to shoot anything because I have no visual sense of anything, but I would know how to direct someone to do it because it's all very clear. So so thank you for that. It's, it's always really great to know. I will say that... There are things that I think could be elevated. So for example, there's a detail. At one point, the protagonist thinks that when she found out about her parents' death, she was desperate to comfort her sister. So this tells me she loves her sister, right? But then she is met with her sister's horrible behavior, and she then, I guess, squashes this this desperation. I wanted more on that for two reasons. One, because clarity. Like, this is a big emotion. I want to understand. Messy emotions are interesting to me. But also because... This kind of brings me to my second point. Her sister is not that awful in these pages. She is a 16-year-old person who just lost her parents and kind of wanted to bring her stuff. You know, she doesn't want to go to a cave. Like, that seems like normal behavior to me. She isn't acting up in any way. So is, the, is it intentional that the protagonist is being unreasonable when characterizing her sister's behavior? Like, is that the intention? Or should the behavior actually be awful? In which case, maybe you need to tweak that. Um, if you want us to dislike this protagonist, I'm fine disliking characters as long as I find them interesting. Then I don't think you need to change what I'm about to say. But if you do want us to like her then maybe you should consider. Right now the whole we need her, we're talking about a child, you know? Like is the stem procedure situation, like is it painful? Does it mean she's going to have to spend the whole time in the cave or is it like you you harvest the cells and then she can leave? Like I'm unclear on that. And I guess how creepy that is? Like is she bringing her sister to Leave her locked in a room for the rest of her life, or is she bringing her sister there for you know a routine procedure that is painless? These are two different things. So I really wanted more clarity on that. Um, The lying and the scheming, the way she approaches that in her interiority, felt a little on the nose. I highlighted the moments and gave you my notes on that. This is all to say that you might be starting out in the wrong place because there is a power imbalance right now. The protagonist has way more power than her little sister, and the protagonist is being mean to the sister. So. When you have a power imbalance like that in an opening scene, it's typically better to skew it in the other way, meaning the protagonist has less power. That makes us root for people more. That makes it more interesting. So I, again, just revisit this if this is your intention. But if you're like, no, no, we're not supposed to like her. That is fine. Then go for it.
0: The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys, that's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone, for 50% off, this is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking
2: for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Holly Cassidy is the pen name for international bestselling author Hannah Mary McKinnon. Her suspense novels include The Neighbours, Her Secret Son, Sister Dear, You Will Remember Me, Never Coming Home, and The Revenge List. McKinnon was born in England, grew up in Switzerland, and now lives in Ontario, Canada with her husband and three sons. The Christmas Wager is her first novel, writing as Holly Cassidy. Hannah, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm so, so thrilled to be here. Thank you, Bianca. It's always a thrill to chat with you and we've chatted with you before about your thrillers and I was going to say, wow, genre change for you, but this is in fact a 360, you going back to rom-coms because that was the first book you published, wasn't it? It was.
3: My very, very first book was called Time After Time and that published in in 2016 and it it was a, a romantic comedy. Sliding Doors meets Groundhog Day, that's how I always describe that one
2: excellent pitch remember for our listeners we always say have your elevator pitch ready be able to summarize your hook and your whole concept really really fast if you need to and Hannah just perfectly showed that over there right so Hannah let's talk about change of genre when it comes to an author because this is something I grapple with I'm like listen I became an author because I am a creative individual ideas come to me I want to explore them I want to expand my creative muscles I don't want to be hemmed into one genre and I don't want to be the kind of writer that's rehashing the same kind of story over and over again. But it makes us harder to market, right? Because our publishers are going, but your reader wants to know that when they go to the bookstore and they see a Hannah Mary McKinnon, they know exactly what it is that they're getting. So is that why you decided to go with the pen name for this? Tell us a bit about the strategy involved behind that.
3: Yes, that is exactly why we decided to go with a pen name. <laughs> I mean, if you if you pick up a copy or you see a copy of The Christmas Wager, the cover is, is very light. You know, it's a cartoon. Cartoon? Well, would you call it a cartoon? I suppose. An uh, illustration. illustration. Thank yeah. you. An illustration, not a cartoon. An illustration, that's a better way of putting it. So, I mean, it, it looks light, but you're right. If there's Hannah Mary McKinnon on it, People who have read my thrillers would be forgiven for thinking, well, maybe it's a, I don't know, a Christmas cozy or something. And then they start reading it and thinking, hang on a minute, where's the dead bodies? So the strategy was really to have a separate name but not to hide that Holly Cassidy is me. So some people, some authors have pen names and you don't know that they're actually writing under a different name. But with this this strategy, it was very clearly we're differentiating but not hiding the fact that Holly is indeed
2: Hannah. Right. I mean, your pictures there in the book, etc., etc., sorry, I'm going back to the, where are the dead bodies? I'm wanting to read that rom-com, man. I really want the rom-com that is strewn with dead bodies. Maybe a, a morgue one, I'm not sure, but anyway. Okay, so what I want to focus on here for our listeners is Hannah's first chapter of this book, because I feel like it is a masterclass of what a first chapter needs to do, and how to be like a Navy SEAL writer. You get in, you get the job done, and you get the hell out. And that is something Hannah has done really, really well with this book. So, Hannah, before I get you to read some of the pages, from your point of view, for our listeners, what do you think a first chapter needs to do? What is its job? What does it need to include? What does it need to encapsulate?
3: That's a really, really interesting question because... If you had asked me that two weeks ago, my answer would have been slightly different. So for my thrillers, I would say you have to have a big hook by the end of the first chapter, certainly, and keep the first chapter on the shorter side. You know, maybe I'm going to call it about 2000 words, maybe, you know, five pages somewhere and somewhere around there. And Preferably, you don't just have a hook at the end of the first chapter, but already very intriguing on the first page, you know. I would have said the same about rom-coms. However, <laughs> I know that with my, with my romantic comedies with the Holly Cassidy books, in particular the second one for, so this, this will be for 2024 that I'm editing now, I had far less information in the first chapter in the first draft. And my editors came back and they said, can you slow it down, please? And nobody has ever said that about my thrillers. Everybody, you know, the feedback, if there was it, well, there always is feedback, of course, but the feedback would be, OK, we need to speed things up. Certainly with my first ones before I cottoned on to the fact, OK, really got to get things moving in chapter one. So I find that in the romance or in the rom-coms, there is more setup expected in Chapter One. who is this person what 's the state of mind what 's the journey and you st- yes of course you still need a hook and you still need to give people to a reason to turn the page, but you can be more descriptive and just have more emotional investment on the reader's behalf in the first chapter of a romantic comedy than you would in a thriller. So that's
2: something that I recently just learned. Never too old to learn something new. There you go. I love that. I love how it differentiates per genre how you know pacing will be different as per the genre because i'm supposed to make sense if there's a dead body found and there is a mystery and the reader is curious about how the dead body ended up there and if it's a closed room and they're reading to find out what happens that's very different to them saying oh i'm spending time with this particular character who i like very much and i want them to find love and happiness and i want them to see all their dreams come true so You know, different things you need to achieve for different genres. So before we discuss what you've managed to pull off here, Hannah, will you please read us the first two pages? Yes, with pleasure. So this
3: is chapter one of The Christmas Wager, and it starts with Bella. Bella, what did you do? Louisa groaned as she leaned across her desk toward me, her voice so low I almost couldn't hear. Her knack for the dramatic made me grin, In the time we'd worked and lived together, I'd got used to my best friend being a little over the top. Somehow she always expected the worst and was more shocked than surprised when whatever life-altering catastrophe she'd envisioned didn't materialise. I didn't do anything, I said, before hesitating a little. I don't think so, anyway. Maybe Louisa's instincts were spot on and I had messed up. Because at Dillon and Prescott, being summoned to my boss's office at 8.32am on a Friday was really good news. Valerie Johansson probably hadn't had her second cup of coffee yet, which meant she'd be more direct, our internal code for blunt, than usual. Although whether that was possible had often been subject to intense debate. Are you sure? Louisa didn't need to whisper, considering Valerie's envy-inducing, freshly remodelled corner office was one floor above ours. As mid-level minions, something I'd been working hard to fix, Louisa and I had a cubicle that was dead centre of the building, devoid of most natural light. Even though Dylan and Prescott designed and built exclusive mansions and commercial structures... This floor of the National Headquarters in Los Angeles left a lot more planning to be desired. Considering we were always among the first to arrive and last to leave, it was a wonder we didn't need three pairs of sunglasses when we stepped into the California sun. Louisa nibbled the tip of her pen, her full, glossy lips and a semi-pout, and hazel eyes flashing with concern. I wonder what you did to make her mad? Nothing. Honest. if there was anything i'm sure i can handle it i tried hard not to appear flustered as i got up which didn't work because in my haste i knocked over my pen cup sending my ruler scissors and pencils flying a few of our colleagues turned their heads in our direction including miles serpico whom i'd ignored as much as humanly possible for the last few months he craned his neck no doubt trying to eavesdrop on our conversation and gather any bit of information he could use to get ahead. I shot him a piercing stare, wishing there was some truth in the saying, if looks could kill. I turned back to Louisa and lowered my voice. I handed in the quarterly reports before they were due and put the brochure for the McClellan building together, exactly how Valerie asked. Did you though? Louisa joined me in giving Miles another glare. She didn't care for him either. You added more about the amenities and swapped out the fitness studio photos. Yeah, because they were better. Agreed. But maybe she didn't approve of the initiative. I guess I'll find out. As I gathered my notepad and pen, I gave the desk I'd worked at for nearly three years a lingering glance, in case I never saw it again.
2: Amazing. I've said it before and I'll say it again. You should also be an audiobook narrator. Hannah, you are (laughs) multi-talented. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But, But focusing on the content here. For our listeners... I hope you got how much Hannah has squeezed into two pages. We get the setting. We understand what this company is, where it is. We understand what time it is. We understand where these characters are. We understand what this character does. We get a bit of context about the best friend. We get physical descriptions about Louisa. We get curiosity seeds about Miles. Dun, dun, dun. Why is it this feud? What is happening? It makes us curious. And and so it goes. There is just so much packed in as the story goes along. And it's woven seamlessly into the dialogue. So it doesn't feel like a whole lot of exposition. It doesn't feel like a whole lot of telling. It feels like we are in scene, and yet we are getting all of this information. Hannah, in terms of advice for emerging authors, how do you balance this? Does this just come from practice? Is it a case of, you know, you have now written so many novels that you kind of instinctively know how to do this? Have you got an approach to it? Does it come in the editing? What is your advice here? Well, I, I do have brilliant editors <laughs> so- so i have to i have to say that of course
3: you know and, and they help tremendously with that but i think one of the things that i absolutely and thank you for the wonderful compliments as well i mean that that really is high praise and i, I appreciate it very very much one of the things i've always loved writing is dialogue and i know that some some authors find it strange because it, it you know it feels stilted and it just feels awkward and uh, is this just going to be you know two talking heads and how do I how do I handle that but I love writing dialogue and I think you can convey so much however you also have to be careful that you're not saying things in your dialogue just to feed the reader so it can only be stuff that for example your character's don't already know (laughs) so that's that's one tip you can't be saying oh you know oh Louisa you look so funny when you pout or whatever I don't know something something like that to describe that you know she's got lovely lips or whatever it really has to be a natural conversation where you can feed stuff in so generally when I'm editing and this is before it goes, before a draft will go to to my editor. So when I'm doing my my self-edits, if you like, after the first rubbish draft and then I work through it, I'll have a look at anything that I've described anywhere. Is it a long, big, long paragraph of, of description narrative? And is there a way I can work some of that into dialogue? Is there a place that I can move it to? Is it just a little hint and vice versa too so actually what i do sometimes or often is i'll i write in word and i will zoom out so that i ha- i can see the whole page or even two pages on my screen and i'll look at the amount of text blocks that there are and if it feels really heavy like a lot like a whole page and okay what what do i have to break up here what can i what can i move around and as you mentioned you know it's just also the little seeds on page 1 or page 2 in this case we understand that there's some kind of conflict between miles and bella but we don't need to know on page 2 what exactly that is we don't need the details of what their relationship is like Um, who these people are you know are they related are they exes are they what are they is he a boss that kind of thing so I also make sure that I don't info dump but equally there has to be a balance that you're not withholding information just for the sake of withholding information so that's a very long answer to say it's practice it's balance and it's also part intuition I think if you read your work out loud I find that really helpful If it feels heavy and clunky, then to you as the author, then it's something you need to revisit and edit.
2: I love what you said there about how it looks visually on the page, because that's such a good piece of advice. So I tell my creative writing students, when you're not sure about the balance of telling versus showing, highlight all the telling in bright pink, highlight what's in scene in green. And do that for like your first few chapters and then zoom out and look at those all those pages together and see if you're spending more time telling than showing because often a visual representation of something is so much more helpful than, than anything else. And something I want to point out here that Hannah's done really well because we generally say, try not to have two characters having a conversation about something that they both know for the sake of the reader, because that can feel really clunky. Like, for example, do you remember yesterday when we had an argument about the fact that, yes, I do remember and you were rather mean to me, right? So that kind of thing can feel really clunky. Listen here how Hannah does this. So Bella's having a conversation with her boss, And Valerie, so I'll I'll skip ahead to some bits. So, how long have you been with our company? Valerie asked once I'd settled in. A little under three years. How are you enjoying your career with us? Fantastic. I love what I do. And then just just a little bit ahead, Valerie goes, let's try that again. Tell me what you really think, not what you presume I want to hear. And then Bella goes, I wish my career would advance at a faster pace. And Valerie says, you went from marketing assistant to team lead in record time. You leapfrogged everybody, including those who joined before you. True, but I work hard and seniority isn't necessarily the best performance indicator. Then Valerie says, fair, you applied internally for your current job six months ago. I recall you specifically wanted to report to me because of the exposure you'd get in sales so you could become an associate. Right, so we have this conversation that could have been given to us in Backstory, but instead, it's a very organic conversation between a boss and someone who's working for her. So was that something that might have originally have been just exposition? Hannah, is that exactly the kind of thing that you say you look at and you go, OK, how can I make it work in
3: dialogue? That conversation is is very close to, to how I originally wrote it, because I, I wanted to demonstrate the dynamics between Valerie, so Bella's boss, and Bella and how much Bella aspires to be like Valerie, including her red-soled shoes that are mentioned a little bit later. So that was always going to be a conversation, but just like you said, not a conversation about things that they already, that they, that they both knew. And that, that's really key, I think, when you're trying to give information to readers. It can't
2: feel like it's just being rehashed for your benefit. That's really the key, isn't it, I think? Right. And plausibility is key. So it makes sense that when a boss and the employee are getting together in an almost kind of performance review, that the boss is kind of summarizing that employee's, you know, their performance up until this point. So that is a moment in which that is plausible. It is organic. It doesn't feel like an awkward kind of backstory info So for our listeners, create these kind of scenarios when you need to do this in which it is plausible, in which this is the kind of scenario where this would happen so that it doesn't feel clunky to the reader because I read that and then I came back to it and I was like, oh, Hannah was really sneaky there. Look at what she did. Look at what she did there. That's amazing. So you never want the reader to stop and roll their eyes and go, oh, God, this is one of those scenes. So, so create these kind of plausible moments. Something else I want to talk about, Hannah, is how – you set up the stakes. Because I think that's so important in early chapters. Readers need to know what the stakes are. You know, you need an inciting incident, which we have in this chapter. Because in this chapter, Valerie is offering Bella an opportunity to open up this whole new department in Denver. And that is our inciting incident. This whole meeting is the inciting incident. But you need to then have a key event it's a point of no return for this character they can't just say ah no thanks I don't want to do this I'm rather just going to go back to bed all the way my life was before and that always needs to be linked to stakes so can you tell our listeners a bit about how you set up the stakes about why this is so important to Bella why she has to do this and why there is no point of return for her why she has to take this job
3: yes absolutely so Bella is originally from a small town. And she is tasked with going to Maple Falls in Colorado to acquire a building that houses a a Christmas shop, a failing Christmas shop, I should say, called Always Noel. And Valerie tells her, if you do this, there's not only a promotion on the line, but also a large bonus. And, And Bella is very, very ambitious. And she wants to, we learned this in the first chapter, we know that she is very career driven, that she wants to do well, that she basically wants to emulate Valerie's success. And when she learns that, you know, she has this possibility of not only a promotion, because the promotion isn't guaranteed, the promotion is only, not even guaranteed if she if she successfully manages to close the deal in Denver. But Valerie basically gives her a challenge. Let's see what else you can do. Let's see what else you've got. So, It would be very difficult for Bella to say no, because it plays into exactly what she wants. She wants this big career. She wants to do well professionally. However, she hates tiny towns. (laughs) She fled from one. She escaped from one. Escaped. That might be a bit too dramatic for a romantic comedy. She left a small town and is in LA and, and very happy there. But now she's tasked with going back. So there's that pull of, oh, boy. I'm gonna go back to a tiny town, really? But I can't say no. I mean, look at look at look at what I could get if I can close this deal. So that was how I thought about raising the stakes for Bella. And she thinks she's just gonna to head to Maple Falls and close the deal in a day and fly back the next the next morning on a plane, you know, no problem. And of course, things don't quite go to
2: plan. I love what you've said you yeah, about tying stakes to conflict because. Here we have internal conflict. So remember, for our listeners, you have all kind of conflict, interpersonal conflict between two characters, conflict between a character and their environment, them in the world, them in society, them in supernatural forces. But the most interesting conflict I've generally find in fiction is the conflict within a character, the push and pull. And so, you know, you have this character loving being in LA. You know, they love the life they're living. They love where they are but here they've been given this opportunity that will advance their career, but there is a downside to it. So we've already got the pros and cons and we see Bella kind of have the push and pull before she just answers. And in terms of what Hannah said, that we get this in chapter one, I want to read you this one paragraph of backstory. Because remember we say, do not spend chapter one miring your reader in backstory. That drags the story back at slows down the pacing and it makes the reader go why the hell didn't you start the book then if you're going to spend so much time there so just have a look at this one paragraph it was no secret I was ambitious and driven I wouldn't celebrate my 30th birthday until the summer but I set my sights on a high-flying career before graduating from high school in the tiny town of Bart's Hollow in Ontario Canada so what Hannah's done there is we get her age in a very organic way it's not that the character starts. A story by going hello my name's Bella I'm 30 years old we get it very organically how old Bella is at this point she goes on to say I'd escaped one of the most frigid places on earth as soon as I could trying to leave behind the memories of my father's abandonment and the arguments with my mother that ensued thereafter heading to Toronto to study business and work for a few years and then on to LA I'd applied for jobs in California well before I'd received my US passport, an uncomplicated task, thanks to dad originally hailing from Seattle, and the offer from Dylan and Prescott had been too good to refuse. So we get that one paragraph which tells us how ambitious she is, it tells us a bit of her backstory, it explains why she doesn't want to go back to a small town, and it tells us something about her childhood and maybe her attitude to love because there's been this father's abandonment. So in one paragraph, we get a heck of a lot there. So again, Hannah, when you sit and do backstory in your opening chapters, what's your approach to it? Do you kind of put it all down on the page during the drafting stage and then come back and pare down? Or do you kind of approach it in a way where you know it needs to be as minimal as possible?
3: I think probably the second second option, actually, particularly in my rom-coms, and I think I'll... (laughs) Moving forward, I might change that approach. Before I actually start writing the book, after I've outlined, but before I I start writing chapter one, I spend time developing my character's backstory. So I interview them and I get to know them as much as I can, because I get to know them fully as I write the story, of course. But I will ask myself the question, how did they become who they are before this story starts? And then some of that I will try and put into chapter one. And then I think it's really during the the editing phase. So initially when I do my own edits, is it enough? Is it too much? Is it slowing the story down? I think with my thrillers, I'll, I'll definitely always be a bit more sparse than in the rom-coms. Because in the thrillers, it's really, oh my goodness, something bad is happening. Let's get a sense of who this person is that it's happening to, or perhaps the person who is doing the terrible thing. Whereas with the rom-com, it really is more of the, where is this person emotionally at the beginning, and how did they get there, and how are they feeling about it? So it is a different approach, but the backstory I develop nonetheless in the same way. And then see where, as I'm editing and writing the initial draft, and then editing it, where do I need to add some more stuff because like you said, you can't front load it all in the even in the first two or three chapters it's just it's just it's it's boring <laughs> you know it's it's not interesting so so it it's something that comes initially during the drafting and then and then editing and then of course with my
2: editor's input as well to see if we need to pair back or add a bit more. Wonderful. And last question, because our time is pretty much up. So in this rom-com, we have alternating chapters between Bella and then Jesse, who is the love interest. Now, how difficult was that writing two first-person POVs for the alternating POVs, one a woman, one a man? Because for me, I, I don't know, I, I would find it very difficult to write from a man's perspective. It sounds so weird to say. I don't know why I would struggle with it. So You know, how did you approach this and and did you have any problems with it or is it something that's easy for you? So my baptism of fire with with multiple points of view uh,
3: chapters came with my second book, my first suspense, The Neighbors, which initially had three. And then when my editor got hold of it, she said, let's add a fourth. (laughs) And I had a panic attack because where (laughs) are we going to do that? Where? Uh, It all worked out in the end. But in that one, I already had, so the, the two main, main characters in The Neighbours are the, the husband and wife. So I already had practice writing from a man's perspective. My third book was complete; All of it was from a man's perspective. And then last year's Never Coming Home Again, all of it was from a single point of view, male and I absolutely love writing the male perspective. I love it. I find I can be less flowery and more direct without, you know, without stereotyping. But but I can, it's just a different style because I try and differentiate the way people talk. So Jesse's sentences when he in dialogue will be a little bit shorter, a bit more clipped, you know. But I, I just I just love writing men. I find it fascinating and intriguing. The one weird thing that was it, the weirdest thing in The Neighbors was writing a sex scene from a man's perspective. That was a bit okay, all right, how am I going to do that then? But otherwise, the way I approach it is you know, we're all human. We all have emotions and feelings and, and we all react to them differently, but men experience, you know, love and jealousy and hate and all all, all the range of emotions so I, ch- I tend not to think about too much about it too much that oh this is this is a man's perspective it's just Jesse and you know, I've been married 24 years I have three adult sons so I guess I've also had time to observe yeah. <laughs> which has no doubt helped too
2: yeah, very much, very much so. I was thinking that because you are around a lot of men and I think that does make it a lot easier. I just laugh when I read men who write women and they talk about how, you know, in the first person and they will talk about how pert their breasts feel as yes. they walk down the street. Yes, you are like, always, yes. yes. <laughs> because that's what we do as women. We think about how our breasts <laughs> feel as we walk. Apparently <laughs> we're very aware of our boobs at all time of the, all times of the day. Well, look, there they are. <laughs> Oh my goodness, it makes me laugh. Last question, Hannah, before we go, is you posted on social media yesterday about uh, a negative sort of review you got on Goodreads, which just gave me the giggles. It made me giggle so much. Because here's the thing for our listeners. Authors get told, do not go on to Goodreads. Do not read your reviews. Those are for other readers. Those are not for you. But it is virtually impossible. I want to give a medal to any author who can honestly tell me that they do not go onto Goodreads, especially in the early days, as they're waiting for the novel to go out in the world to see how it's being perceived, how it's been received, etc, etc. So can you tell us a little bit about about that and, and your humorous approach to it? Because I think it teaches us something about not to take ourselves too seriously as writers. Oh
3: yes, <laughs> I was very amused, and I think you know I, I'm I'm eight books in now, so I, I I have a different approach. I don't go looking for negative reviews, but sometimes sometimes they find you, especially if you're tagged, which I wasn't in this one. So for anybody listening, if you write a negative review, if you don't like a book and you write a negative review, absolutely, you know you didn't like it, no problem, but please don't tag the author. <laughs> Because, you know, we then see it and maybe we would prefer not to. But this review in particular made me made me laugh because the person who wrote it was very emotional about the fact that Bella and Jesse have sex within a week of meeting each other and they were outraged. That And basically the question was, is this what normal people do? <laughs> you, should, you should wait. You should have self-respect. People should respect themselves and one another and not get into, quote, their, each other's frigging pants, unquote, <laughs> within a week. And I thought that was hilarious. So I met my husband online completely by accident. I was in Switzerland. He was in Canada 24 years ago. I flew to Canada to meet him. Spoiler alert, I didn't wait a week. <laughs> okay? So, I flew all the way to Canada. I mean, come on. You know? No, don't be silly. But it just it made it made me giggle. And and one of the reasons why it made me laugh too is because the person was very, very outraged to the point where it seemed as though they felt that Bella and Jesse were real, which in actual fact is a real compliment to me. Huge. A massive compliment. compliment because if I can get this person to be that outraged about these two fictional people having sex in a fictional bed in a fictional town after a fictional week, my gosh, I, I,
2: I guess I did a really good job of making them human. <laughs> 100%. 100%. I, I got a one star Goodreads review for The Witches of Moonshine Manor, in which someone said how disgusted they were to be presented with an 80-year-old dick <laughs> in a sex scene. And they were just like, that is disgusting. <laughs> who wants that? Did not finish. They were so outraged. And I was like, you do understand that this is a fictional yes. 80-year-old dick. But yeah, when we do our jobs well, and you know, if we can piss off readers that much, I, I think we've done our jobs as well as what we would if, if we'd made them really love it. I would prefer this outraged review than
3: somebody who just
2: wrote meh dot dot (laughs) dot indifference i think indifference is the worst result that we can get as authors either people must love it or they must hate it but i agree meh is is probably the worst result you can get right Hannah, as always, such an absolute joy chatting with you. For our listeners, we're linking to the Christmas wager on our bookshop.org affiliate page. For those of you who are writing rom-coms, go grab it. For those of you who just want to see an excellent first chapter, how to weave all these different elements of craft together, go and have a look at it. Buy it for Christmas. Support Hannah, support independent bookstores, and support the podcast at the same time. Hannah, we know we'll have you back again soon, and we're looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful, as always. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.
0: Here's the thing ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlowaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone.
1: This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is